All right, uh, we're going to be uh, in the lectionary passages for a few more weeks. I decided to just keep on with the, the lectionary. Uh, I'll start up another series again here soon. Um, so we'll be in three places in the lectionary every week. And if you're not familiar with being in a lectionary, it's, it's not always that I'll preach on all three. I, I may only reference one or two, but we get to hear from the whole voice of the scriptures, Old, New Testament, Gospels, Psalms, uh, and get to hear some from the whole council of the scriptures. Uh, so I'll start in Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on, wooden, on a wooden platform that they'd made for the purpose. Beside him stood Matithia, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maseiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Makijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. I, I deserve a medal. Okay, I just want that, yes. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces on the ground. Also at Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hudai, Masai, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleiah, the Levites, the whole gang helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is from the book of Colossians, chapter 12, starting at the 12th verse. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? As it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member... 
where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. There may be no, no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Finally, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, starting at the 14th verse. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. And we spread our hands, we open our hearts, and we invite you to come and apply and bring those words deep into our hearts. God, we pray that every place in us that is resistant to the truth will be pushed back, softened, crushed by your word. And every place that is wounded and broken within us will be healed by your word. All other things, God, let them pass away, but help us to latch on to what is really and truly your word and to drink deeply from those streams of living water. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, um, I'm not, I'm not going to be talking much uh, from 1 Corinthians 12 uh, this morning, but you're going to see uh, some 1 Corinthians 12 things going on here. Um, we saw it a little bit in having new members in, in a little bit. We're going to install new officers in our church, deacons and elders. Uh, certainly that's part of it. Um, and I, I uh, you know, last, not last week, but the week before, uh, before everything shut down, uh, I was up in Pennsylvania for class, 
uh, I was finishing the last class of my doctorate of ministry program uh, so I could spend the next year researching and writing and hopefully finishing this thing uh, and helping our church in the process. And uh, I, I came home and super grateful for our congregation, one, for all the support, for allowing me to do this, for letting me use two weeks of study leave every year to go up and, and do this. Um, in so many ways, I'm super grateful. One of the um, professors of the class, he doesn't, he's not on normal, um, he's not on staff at the seminary normally. He is a medical doctor who also has his doctorate of ministry. And the class is a research methods class because I have to do research and they teach you how to do research. And so this guy's done tons of research. And he, uh, he works for the CDC. He's an infectious diseases expert who was like, helped to lead the CDC's Ebola response uh, years ago. I remember when that, that was. And um, he ha happened to get his doctorate of ministry at this same seminary. So he comes back and uses his vacation to help teach this class, which doesn't sound very vacation-y to me. Um, but clearly, I mean, he's a busy guy for the past couple of years. Yes, um, he and his wife are both medical doctors that work for the CDC in different sections. His wife's a, a data analyst, scientist, constantly analyzing COVID data and stuff like that. Uh, and we were kind of between sessions, and he was on two computers, like checking email and stuff like that. And um, I just asked him, how are you? Like, for the past two plus years, how have you been as a brother in Christ? And um, he said, you know, thank you for asking. <laughs> um, I've gotten to see the church do lots of really cool stuff. Um, in so many ways, serving the community. And so, because what I asked him was, how do you keep going? And he said, that stuff really like fires me up. Um, that I get to see the church actively serving and loving and caring for, for the community. And I was like, well, you know, if there's something I could tell my church from somebody like you, involved in ministry, but a scientist, a medical doctor, working in the thick of all this stuff, what would you want my church to know? And he said, uh, you know, Christians have an opportunity to be on the right side of this pandemic. Um, you can, we can either be sort of hotbeds of fear and misinformation and all kinds of things, or we can be a place of love for one another and for our neighbors and service and care. And he said, please make sure that you're doing one and not the other. You know, I, I was left there and I was like, I love our church. I'm super grateful for the people in our church that I see um, so frequently and willingly giving away their lives for other people. You know, we've we've had as we have had to face the same challenge that, that everybody else has had. But I don't come into our church in the middle of a war zone like plenty of other people do, and we 
clearly have people that view the world very differently, politics, COVID, all that stuff. And when we come in here, these other members, other parts of the body, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 12, we understand we need one another. Even, even when it's hard, when it's difficult, we need one another. And I left after hearing that from him, and I was like, you know, I, I don't think we're perfect. But I'm very, very grateful that I've gotten to experience that day by day by day, four years, not just three years, but for 10 years, for longer. Uh, and I just want to encourage you to keep on in that vein. And what fuels that kind of ethic in life together is in dis on display here in these passages uh, that Jesus, uh, about Jesus, that Jesus preaches and, and what we hear in the book of Nehemiah. Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, has just finished a time of temptation. And he is now leaving the wilderness full of the power of the Holy Spirit. And, it, and now, really, his public ministry is about to begin. And he goes back to his hometown, to Nazareth. And we'll, we'll pick up the second half of this story next week. This portion is just the moment when Jesus goes into the synagogue and he reads this passage from Isaiah 61. And he reads it and he sits down and he just announces to everybody that these things are being fulfilled in their very presence. And, and we're going to talk about the, why what he says is so scandalous. This story does not end with everybody going, yay, Jesus. It ends with them going, kill Jesus. And we'll talk about why that is. But in this portion of the story, the, it, the focus is on what Isaiah has prophesied about what God is going to do in Israel and Jesus' uh, picking up of the task. Jesus, if you don't remember, says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you sort of looked in the footnotes of your Bible and saw where this passage came from and flipped to where this passage was, which I recommend you adopt that practice. If you go back to Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, Jesus cuts the quote short. He stops and does not complete the rest of the verse. Mid-verse, he stops, which is not ordinarily something you would expect. The, the rest of the verse says, the proclamation of the vengeance of our God. And Jesus doesn't read that part. He sits down and he says, this is being fulfilled in your hearing. Now, this thing that he says, good news to the poor, liberty to captives, sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed, is approached in, I think, a couple of unhealthy ways. And if I could stereotype, if you'll just let me do that for a moment. Uh, conservative people, theologically conservative people, tend to read this passage and make it entirely theological. It, and it drives theologically liberal people nuts. And theologically liberal people tend to interpret this passage 
entirely, literally, and visually, and not at all theologically, and it drives conservative people nuts. And I would say that, that both of these sides of the, the theological spectrum are, are probably better off if they live on this passage, not with an or, but an and. It is important for both theologically conservative people, which is our home, uh, our, our tradition, that that's us. It'd be important to listen to and watch to see what we can see about how Jesus truly, literally, physically does these things that he says. And, and it's absolutely necessary for theologically liberal people to listen and to see how Jesus does exactly this thing spiritually and theologically. And that Jesus, I don't think, fits neatly on this issue into either one of those camps. But in fact, his proclamation of this coming and this happening embraces both of these things. It's really, really important uh, for people like me who grew up in very conservative churches to, to hear Jesus say that he's proclaiming good news to the poor and to watch him in his ministry and to understand that poor is not a metaphor, that he is actually proclaiming good news especially to very poor people, fiscally, materially poor. Most of Jesus' ministry is intentionally located away from the centers of power and wealth and influence and is with people who don't necessarily know where food is coming from at the end of the week. So that it's not that surprising when you see Jesus surrounded by masses of these kinds of people and they're all hungry and they don't have food and they don't have money to go buy food. The miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, the 4,000 is not a fluke. They don't carry excess money and food on them because Jesus comes to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus comes to proclaim liberty to captives. The church historically has felt that jails are a great place for Christians to be involved because they've heard this teaching that Jesus proclaims liberty of a kind to actual captives and that the church is called to actually go to captive people. Whether they deserve to be there or not is not the question. And Jesus uses the example of jailed people specifically to say, this is how you demonstrate whether or not you actually know me. Because when I was in jail, you came and brought me. This idea that Christians are called to captive people is exemplified in the life and teaching of Jesus. Ultimately, we have to understand, Jesus is preaching basically to a people who are captive at large. They are a conquered people. They are in occupied territory. And Jesus does not come to deliver them in that moment from their political captivity, but he does proclaim that their liberty is at hand to these captive people. Jesus 
announces himself as the one who recovers the sight of the blind. And Jesus goes about several times healing blind people. And of course we know it's not just the blind that Jesus heals. It's the crippled. It's the mute. It's the demon-possessed. There's a reason why so much of Jesus' ministry is actually invested and involved in the healing of the broken. Because their physical brokenness, Jesus sees as a place where the kingdom is called to rush into and mend the broken and those who need to be healed. And when Christians have historically read the Gospels, what they've believed is the ministry of healing, physical bodily healing, is a good thing. That's why so many hospitals have Christian names on them. Because Christians built them. Because Christians believed that the sick ought to be healed. And that was experienced outside the walls of the church. Rather than just within. Healing is the mission of the church. A lot of times we have felt like in our theological home... If we're going to do good things, it needs to be with some sort of condition attached, at least with a track in the bag or something, so that you go home. And so the real thing is the goodie that you stick in the bag. But Jesus just announces and gives healing. And a lot of times, we are not so great at prioritizing the healings of our communities. And if I, if I could speak a little bit more personally, churches are, just broadly speaking, not great places for people with disabilities. My own wife has had to teach me that for 15 years, that one of the hardest places for her to be is church. Because there's a whole lot that relies on your ability to hear. And not much accommodation for those who can't. And if you look in a lot of churches, there's not a lot of representation of people who are deaf and blind and crippled. People who have different intellectual disabilities or physical needs. Jesus called, said that his call was to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. And Christians are called to that same task. Not as like an alteration of Jesus or a disfigurement of Jesus' ministry, but an alignment with his ministry. That any kind of oppression is ought to be met with the people who bear Jesus' name. Wherever it is, whatever it looks like, to whatever degree we are able. Jesus actually came to do these things. Now, it's also appropriate and right and good to understand that the scope of that ministry is not merely those who you can visibly say belongs in those categories. 
But then when Jesus comes to preach to the captive, to the blind, to the oppressed, it is all kinds of people that ultimately find themselves the recipient of his teaching and his healing ministry. Because what Jesus will say and to point out and to unearth in his teaching is that it is not only the physically blind that he has come to heal, but it is also the spiritually blind. It is not only the physically captive, but the spiritually captive. It is not only the physically oppressed, but the spiritually oppressed. So that you can't read the Gospels without understanding that Jesus came to do both of these things. To physically heal the sick and to spiritually raise the dead. And all of this is presented to us with Jesus preaching these words. With these words on his mouth. And saying these words are fulfilled to you in this moment. In my presence. A lot of times what happens, conservative and liberal, as we come to this text and we say, what is it then that I ought to do? How is this about me? And when you come to this text or any text and you start to sift out all the questions and get boiled down to one question, how is this about me? You are missing the thrust of the text which is that this one and all others are about Jesus. That the head of this ministry of healing, uh, of liberty, of release and freedom is ultimately the head of Christ's own church, which is Christ himself. And if you don't first understand that principle, then you hive off into whatever particular brand of interpretation you'd like and you either say, this is about me being forgiven for my sins and this is what I really need or you become about, this is what I need to do in my life to fill up my volunteer hours instead of starting and saying, Jesus does this. This is about Jesus. The center of the mission of God is about Jesus. The center of what God wants to do in the world is Jesus. And it is not about my ambitions or aims. So that if I'm more comfortable just theologizing everything, I have to see Jesus as the center of the mission and then follow him into actually doing works of healing, mercy, freedom, all of that stuff. And if I want to just be comfortable kind of just being a good person, I have to see Jesus as the center of the text, the center of the mission, and he comes for me to excavate the interior of my own life and point out to me that I'm not just the one who's trying to follow a moral example. I am the recipient of what Christ came to do. If Jesus is the center of the story and the center of the text, he pulls you from the fringes of mistakes and keeps you centered on what God is doing, which is always and only about Jesus. <clears throat> we, read, <coughs> we read in this book of Nehemiah, the people hear the law of God. They've come back from Babylon. And it's been a long time since they've heard the word of God rightly read and preached. 
And they are distressed, as they should be in many ways. The people have forgotten the law. The temple has been leveled and destroyed. And they are a people without identity. And the grief of who they are not stands on the verge of crushing them. And Ezra stands up and he says, This is not a day of mourning, but it is a day of feasting. Drink good wine, eat the fat of the food. This is the proclamation of God's arrival. If you come to this text or any text and you put yourself and center stage. You will ultimately be crushed by what you are not or by what you should be. The announcement that Jesus proclaims here in the reading of Nazareth is that it is all about him and that he has come to fulfill this word. And if you are here this morning and you find that you have not followed him into where he is going, Or indeed, you find that you are one of the ones who is poor and blind and captive and oppressed. Wherever you might be, Jesus stands in front of you and says to you, the way that he said to the people of Nazareth that day, these words are fulfilled in your hearing. Because Jesus is the one who changes the story. The moment when you think your doom has arrived and you think it ought to be at the hand of God himself. Jesus delivers to you a word of mercy, of healing, of freedom. And he says, you ought to be the one who sees how far you have fallen away. You ought to be the one who is consumed by your own blindness. You ought to feel how far you have fallen away. And the surprising good news is that God has come to deal with you gently and mercifully. Because Jesus is that good. And Jesus is still moving into the world to do these things bodily and spiritually. So the world will only find its mending at his hands. That every disease, every case of COVID will be eradicated, every broken bone set, every death undone, every area of your own heart where you are bound to that secret sin, to the burden of your own shame, to the place where grief has struck you down. It is only ever at the hand of Jesus that you are meant to find your release and your relief. This self-same Jesus is in our midst today and tells for you the truth. These words are fulfilled in your very hearing. Would you come and respond and receive your healing from him and follow him wherever he might lead? I'm going to pray for us. 
I'm going to leave a, a moment of, of quiet here so that you can reflect and think about that. <clears throat> and I'm going to pray. And, and I would encourage you in that just this couple moments of quiet, would you allow the voice of Jesus to speak these words to where you are? To pull you back from any of the ways that you have gotten focused on yourself, what you ought to be or what you are not, and pull your eyes back to him. Jesus, we thank you that you are better than we expect. That remains true no matter how long we've known you. You have mercy enough for us. We, we openly acknowledge and confess to you that we have, we have not been agents of healing the way that we should. We have not made space for those who are deaf and blind and mute. We have been so focused on ourselves that we have left aside this ministry that you blazed ahead of us and marked your church by. We confess that we have been our own spiritual representation of this, that we, we ourselves have been blind to so much. We have chosen captivity in so many ways. And Father, every place where we have lost hope or had our hopes built around ourselves, God, I pray that you would present yourself so clearly to your church and that you would help us to hear those words. These words are fulfilled in your hearing. And they are fulfilled in our hearing for us. Our hopes are only in you, Lord Jesus. Help us to not believe that we can find it anywhere else or otherwise. For those who are despairing, God, I pray that they would find their comfort in you. And for those who are waking up to what they have turned aside from, I pray that they will find their comfort in hearing you say those words. Jesus, we are grateful for you. And we are far less grateful than we ought to be. Lord, we love you. Help us to receive your love and to live out of it from the inside out that the whole world may be filled with your glory. Amen.